Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. How to save good jobs in a time of automation. Peter Capelli. Robotic systems and automated systems, when they make mistakes, they can make really, really big mistakes. And if you think about where the federal government has been spending its money, it's investing tons of money in robotics, and it's investing zero in efforts to think about how we might use employees better. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, make the case for why listeners should do more than just listen. They should subscribe because subscribing means you get the show without having to hunt around every time you hear we've done something interesting. It'll come to you. So we're doing something a little bit new here, Jim. We're having part two of a fascinating discussion with an expert on a problem that I think nearly all of us are at least concerned about, which is the threat of automation to our jobs and the possibility that robots are going to take over. And Peter Capelli, who's joining us on the show via Skype from Philadelphia, is saying, hang on, some of our worries are misplaced. Right. So Peter is a management professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. And you're throwing a little bit of cold water on all this paranoia that we're seeing out there that, you know, the robots are coming to take all of our jobs, that automation is going to wipe out the middle class. So for those who didn't hear the previous episode, why is that wrong? Well, I think some of the changes that we're talking about are simply about what is technologically possible. And there are lots of things that are possible that we don't do, like airplanes can fly themselves, but we don't let them do it because some of it, frankly, is passengers don't like the idea of nobody being in that cockpit. So lots of things that are possible that are expensive as well. You know, years ago, General Motors tried to deal with its quality problem by getting rid of workers in the assembly plants and putting robots in place. So in the early 1980s, they spent $43 billion to try to catch up with the Japanese by putting robots in their plants. And it turned out that even though each individual robot might be fine, you put them into a sequence, if anything went wrong with any one of them, the whole system shut down because there was no ability to adapt. And they got completely kicked by Toyota, which 
basically was using no robots and was just using flexible people. So the other thing that we downplay is the capabilities of people and the ability to manage them better. So it's just a cool story to talk about robots. There are lots of folks who have a commercial interest in robotics who are pushing these stories along. There's a lot of consulting firms that have problems they'd like you to believe because they have solutions to sell you about them. So that's what makes the news. Okay, well, Peter Capelli, let's look at what we can do about this potential threat of, of, of robots and automation and how we can save good jobs. So, so let's start with, with companies. Well, I guess the first thing to note is that what makes a job good has an enormous amount to do with how managers and companies manage the jobs. Whether you give people some control over what they're doing, whether you take care of them, whether you give them responsibility, all those kinds of things. And, you know, the rates of pay for factory jobs have been higher, but that's kind of a historical artifact of unionization in those industries. There's nothing about a assembly line job that requires that you pay more than, say, a home healthcare worker is paid. It's not that the jobs are more important or anything. So one of the things that is important here is the pace of change. There will be, and there have been, technologies which are a lot cheaper than workers, and they come in pretty quickly, and there's just no way that you can compete with people um, like switchboards replacing telephone operators. Inside a company, one of the questions is, do we take those people who are going to lose their jobs and do we retrain them for other jobs? Yeah, you, you actually have written a lot about this and say that many companies who say there's a skills gap and they can't find the workers they're looking for instead ought to be retraining their workers. Yeah, I think it's been a big change. It used to be that this was the common solution inside companies, and now it is incredibly exceptional. There's a story right now, AT&T is getting a lot of attention about the fact that they are thinking about retraining their workers, as opposed to just dumping them and trying to hire new ones. You know, that's been an easier thing to do when the economy was down, but it's an interesting policy question for us, too, whether we should expect companies to train their workers, or is this something that we're expecting now the government and taxpayers to do for them? That's a big change for sure. But how companies manage these jobs is, is one of the big factors. I think the other big factor is why aren't we talking more about ways in which productivity can be improved through better use of employees as opposed to getting rid of them with technology which often is tricky and often is expensive to use, certainly at the beginning. Well, to some extent, the public policy has been pitched toward investing in technology. Now, here's a simple example of that. If I make an investment in my employees to retrain them with new skills that will allow them to be more productive, that counts as a liability on my balance sheet. In fact, you can't even see it in my balance sheet because it's buried in the administrative cost section along with paper and pencil and lunches for executives, things that investors like to squeeze down. But if, if you, I but, buy a, but if you took that same amount of money and spent it on buying some new equipment, 
how would that be accounted for? So that shows up as an asset on your balance sheet that counts against liabilities. You could depreciate it if you want to in ways that might make profitability look different to you, but it counts as an asset. Investment in employees counts as a liability. And if you're interested in shareholder value and looking like you're profitable and all public companies are, then you're punished if you invest in employees as opposed to investing in robots. Is this a financial question mainly, Peter, or is it also a tax question? Uh, it's both. It's financial accounting, which is driven by the private sector and organizations that set accounting standards. And it's also driven or could be driven by the Internal Revenue Service and what they're willing to account for and, and how they're willing to to assess these sorts of things. So this is kind and, of crucial. So you're, look, you're, you're looking for a change of thinking on this to, to essentially that, value workers more and, and machines less? Well, at the very least, we shouldn't be biased toward machines. That doesn't make any sense. It's not just about saving jobs. It's if you've got a choice, why should we favor investing in equipment versus investing in people? And especially if you think that it is important to have people who can do jobs which are better for them, more skilled jobs are typically more interesting, and it's possible they might actually pay better, um, then why aren't why, why aren't we advantaging that would be one question, but at least why don't we try to not disadvantage those investments, right? And if you think about where the federal government has been spending its money, it's investing tons of money in robotics, and it's investing zero in efforts to think about how we might use employees better. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Peter Capelli of the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School about the threat of automation to jobs. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. It's when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do we fix it? So let's talk a little bit about the, the value of that human employee listeners to our podcast know I'm writing a book about disasters. And one of the things that you often see is humans make a lot of mistakes, but they're also pretty good at catching mistakes. So tell us a little bit about some of the advantages of human workers in complex systems. Well, some of it has to do with ingenuity, you know, figuring out better ways to do things. Some of it has to do with what you'd hope conscientious workers would do, which is looking out for problems when they occur. You know, robotic systems and automated systems, when they make mistakes, they can make really, really big mistakes that go on for a long time until somebody catches them. Uh, there's a 
nice example of one of my colleagues here, Marshall Fisher, uh, discovered studying retail operations. And when, looking, when you when you say here, you mean at the at the Wharton School? Yep, here yeah, at the yeah. Wharton School. Um, uh, Marshall Fisher, who's who's an operations research, you know, sort of engineering uh, orientation, he was looking at retail firms and productivity issues. And you know, one of the big things in retail is the supply chain, and can you get better at managing it? Well, one of the things he discovered is that the weakest link in the supply chain in retail is at the very front line, and that means getting things from the back of the store to the front of the store. And that's usually where things break down. And if you don't keep the shelves stocked, then people don't buy stuff. And frequently, if they come in looking for something and they can't find it, they just walk right out of the store and go someplace else, and not only buy that other thing someplace else, but the other things that were on their shopping list as well. And the key factor in keeping shelves stocked is having employees who are paying attention, who notice that there's a shelf over there, uh, things have already run out, let me go to the back of the store and get something to fix that. Now, you might think that good employees would always do that, but in fact, they're often supervised in ways that actually prevent them from doing that. The supervisor is telling them, okay, at nine o'clock you come in and stock shelves, and then from there you go back into the back office, and then back there in the inventory room, you're piling up stuff back there. So so ingenuity is being discouraged. Uh, right. Uh, and just in, in fairness, let's just lay the whole picture out here. If you have a workforce of people who are engaged, that is, they care about helping the business and they are able to use their initiative to improve things and to fix things on the fly, that's really hard to beat, even with a lot of fancy equipment. It is much more difficult to manage a workforce like that, however. And Andrew Putzer's comment, which we were talking about in the last podcast, the almost Secretary of Labor, who was commenting why he liked robots better than people because they always showed up on time and they were always polite and all these sorts of things. Um, if you manage employees poorly, they're not going to be particularly polite. They're not necessarily going to show up on time and they can be a pain for the organization to use. And you could see why if you didn't want to manage your people carefully and you wanted to not give them autonomy and you wanted to monitor them carefully, not pay them well, not care about them. A robot could probably beat that because the, the people themselves are not going to be very effective workforce. It is hard to manage them carefully. It's not that hard. I guess I should restate that. It's not that hard. But if you're somebody who never cared about management, never learned anything about it, if all you knew, for example, was technology, you're going to go with technology. So what you're saying is if we want humans to perform better than machines, we can't treat them like machines. Right. That's right. Uh, and I think that's part of the uh, – that's been a longstanding problem. It's kept the people who study management and do management consulting in business for the last 70 years is basically trying to explain to managers who went to engineering school that people are not robots. That's – Right. That keeps executive programs in business around the world, and it's been true for 70 years, and it's just as true now. The difference now is we're more inclined to have to teach finance people that workers aren't robots. But, you know, it's the same story. You don't know anything about management. You don't see how you could possibly get a workforce to manage well, and so you're thinking about just replacing them all the time. It, it's, it's clear, though, that it costs a great deal more money 
to fire someone than then to hire somebody else, right? I mean, that's, a, that's one of the solutions for perhaps hanging on to jobs or, hang, or, or keeping workers yep. in, in the workforce. Well, now that's a great point, right? Because you would think that would be a statistic that's on the tip of everybody's tongue. But I encourage you to ask executives when you see them if they know the costs of turnover in their company. And I'll bet you that they don't. I once had a fascinating conversation with a group of Silicon Valley CEOs, and I was asking them if they knew the costs of what would happen if their supply chain fell short and they didn't get parts. And and they said they pretty much knew that. And then I asked them (laughs) if they knew the costs of turnover in their company, and none of them knew which is kind of astonishing when you think about it. So if you if you don't know the cost of turnover, doesn't seem like a problem to lay people off and try to hire new ones. Well, speaking uh, of solutions, let's let's look at taxes. Uh, Bill Gates has talked about a tax on robots. What do, what do you think of that? Cuz that would be a a dramatic change in the system. Well, I think what he's actually describing is he's talking about balancing the playing field because If you hire a worker to do X amount of work, you have to pay a bunch of taxes on top of the costs of paying that worker. If you hire a robot to do exactly the same work, you don't pay any of those taxes. So public policy in that context is stacked against hiring workers. So what he's really arguing is a tax on robots is really just a way of saying let's level the playing field between investing in people versus hiring robots. So what are some steps that companies can take to move ahead in a more progressive style of management? You know, I think the simplest ones are just look at some evidence, which is something we we rarely do, but evidence like, for example, figuring out what your turnover costs are. What is the cost of leaving a position vacant, for example? What's the value to you of a good employee versus poor employee? So I think it starts at the top of the house with a recognition that good employees really matter a lot. Everybody says that, but frankly, nobody means it. You know, there's been a couple of interesting papers Uh, in the Journal of Finance. And these are two papers that have looked at companies that have been named best places to work. And what they find is that if you look out into the future, there are unexpected shareholder returns that come from being on that list. So in other words, you could simply invest in companies that are on the best places to work list, and you would find you would earn above average returns on those companies in the future. And the reason for that is twofold. It's not just that they perform better. If everybody knows somebody's going to perform better, you're not going to make any money buying their stock. It's they're going to perform better and people don't see it. So I I think it requires having a look at some of the evidence on this, which is probably not that hard to find, uh, but that's, I'd say, the place to start. And I think on the public policy side, we could do some things to stop stacking the deck in favor of robots. So what is it about those companies that get on those best places to work lists? What do you think makes them perform better? Well, here's a simple example. If you could delegate work to frontline workers, you know, one of the best, uh, most successful innovations of all time is something called flexi time, which is basically you allow your office staff to figure out 
how they want their hours to work so that they make sure they cover everything, all the work that gets to be done. But if somebody needs to leave early and come in early or somebody needs to start later and go later, you know, they work it out themselves. If you could really do all that, you don't need supervisors to stand over them and make those decisions for them if you really trust those folks. And if you don't trust your employees, you probably can't trust your supervisors either. So you need somebody to stand over those folks. So you could get rid of that whole layer of management if you could trust those folks. Peter, we've talked about better management. We've talked about taxes. We've talked about companies and finance. Let's make the case for workers. Recently, we read a book uh, called Cure by Joe Marchant, who's going to be a future guest on How Do We Fix It? And she talked about the effect of human interactions between doctors and patients uh, and, and this idea that greater interaction in, in the healthcare sphere, uh, rather than automation, improves patient outcomes, that there's, right. a, there's a human element to this. And I think you can say this in a whole range of areas, that just having more person-to-person contact uh, improves the experience for people and also uh, can potentially further monetize uh, companies, can, can help their sales. Yeah, there's some real value there. Uh, we know, for example, you know, that people... Uh, with bad outcomes, don't sue their doctors when their doctors have a good interaction with them. You know, uh, there's all kinds of ways this could pay off. It does require, though, that they have good interactions uh, with each other in the workplace. We know that this is one of the keys, the key to employee retention is if people like their coworkers and get along with them and with customers as well. Um, but it does require that you treat people in ways that they feel like they want to have good interactions with customers and with their peers. You know, otherwise you could be worse. Lots of interactions, more interactions with somebody who's really grumpy is probably not going to be the greatest thing in the world, right? Peter Capelli, of the Wharton School. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you really have been a debunker, I think, of a whole bunch of myths. And I feel a little bit better about the future of the American workforce now than I did before we started the podcast. This, this is my favorite type of show. I love a good debunking. Oh, good. Peter, thanks very much. Thank you. So in this second episode of speaking about the threat of automation and robots to work, we chatted with Peter Capelli of the Wharton School about how good jobs can be saved. Right. Well, first of all, I want to push back a little bit on the idea of the threat of automation. You know, there's so much doom saying that the robots are going to take our jobs and everything. What was so great about the first episode and the second episode with Peter Capelli is a, a much more down-to-earth attitude about what's really happening here. But also, technology is generally a good thing. You know, when um, when computers made work more efficient, letters didn't need to be retyped over and over again, that's a good thing. That helps companies be more efficient. The, the, but the, what I like about his perspective is that we're, we're not – his idea is that we're not measuring things correctly. We are uh, – because of the way we do accounting, investing in equipment – looks like something that's really good for the bottom line. Investing in human resources often doesn't look like it's good for the bottom line. And he also pointed out that a lot of company executives are really ignorant of the true benefits of 
retraining workers, whereas they're only too aware of the alleged benefits of, of buying more equipment. And that co- comes back to his point that we need to reassess our whole orientation, how we measure, what we measure, and not being too hung up on sort of a, a traditional mechanistic approach to uh, to how a company is organized. One thing I'm going to push back on what you said, though, was that the technology is a benefit. Yes, it's a benefit usually, but it's not a benefit to people, to workers who think they've got a job for life or think they don't have to uh, be involved in retraining or in being actively involved in in changing what they do for a living because technology is a disruptor and that can be very painful. And there is a lot of painful disruption. There's no question about it. And your heart has to go out to these people. At the same time, when technology does change jobs, it often changes them for the better. You know, right now there's all this nostalgia for the 50s and everybody had good high paying factory jobs. And you know what? Most of those jobs are terrible. I mean, they were they were noisy, dangerous. People lost fingers. Fatality rates in factories were very, very high. You know, sitting at a desk uh, doing a PowerPoint presentation may not be the pinnacle of of career enjoyment, but it's a lot safer and more creative than standing on an assembly line. So. I don't think the technology is the enemy. The enemy is systems that don't really get the most value out of workers and give them the flexibility to grow and be creative in their jobs. And being political here, I don't think Donald Trump is doing anybody any favors by talking about bringing back um, the old America or making America great again. We have to move forward. Right. Um, the economy is changing other economies around the world are changing, and many of these jobs that we think are coming back, for instance, in the coal industry, they're not coming back. Mm-hmm. And they're not coming back, not because of government policy or environmentalists, they're not coming back because the marketplace is changing. Other forms of energy have become much cheaper. And it's, an, it's another, you know, it's fracking, basically, that has a, a, a field where an enormous amount of creativity and entrepreneurship has brought down the price of natural gas to levels no one would ever guess. This is the kind of thing that people often don't see coming. A, a technological innovation happens. It might create some disruption. It might eliminate jobs in one area, but it creates new jobs in another area. When you look at the status quo and you say, so this new thing's happening, it's going to eliminate a certain type of job. Therefore, the sky is falling. It may actually be a genuine problem for real people. We have to help them. We need to have policies to support them. But at the same time, the economy is always moving forward. I don't think we want to go back to a day when most people worked on farms or, or many, many people worked in dangerous you know, polluted factories, but we need to harness the technology in the right way. But Jim, you know what? The sky is falling on our show. We've got to get out of here. <laughs> this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And the show is produced by Miranda Schaefer. And music's by Lou Stravinsky. Our social media coordinator is Julia Beckett Lewis. And the production's made by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for joining us. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.